Let's gather together and we'll begin with prayer and then we'll open up the Scripture and study the Word of God together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for another Sunday to gather and to sit under the means of grace, to listen to your Word, to learn what you've said, and to have our minds renewed, to fellowship with one another, to encourage and exhort one another to pray together, and Lord, today we also will be receiving the Lord's Supper, and we think about what you've done for us and proclaim that as our hope. Lord, we commit this Sunday morning and this class in particular to you, and we pray for the flock that's scattered around the world that listens in. We pray that you'd bless them and help them find their remnant, find some people to gather with and pray together with, and we pray for their well-being as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, good morning, dear saints. We are studying 2 Corinthians 10, and we started on verse 12, but I didn't get all the way through that last time. The theme in verses 12 through 18 is boasting, and the question is what's appropriate, what's an appropriate thing to boast about and what's inappropriate. And Paul is going to claim that his critics are falsely boasting. They compare themselves with one another and are more like the secular philosophers and and, uh, experts in rhetoric than they are Christian ministers. I was going to read a quote uh, that I didn't get to last week by Barnett, and then I have a bunch of quotes from Garland that I find quite interesting because he cites some of the secular writers on this topic. And it's interesting what kind of world they lived in in the first century. And it will help us understand how these people became so secular-minded. But Barnett says this, The point of their classification and comparison of themselves with him, which emerges as 10, 12 through 12, 13 unfolds, was to establish their superiority to Paul in ministry. In two areas in particular, in rhetoric, 11.5 through 6, and in visions and revelations, 12.1, and so on. Although Paul says he will not classify and compare himself, he does precisely that, but in a radically different and surprising manner. He points to his superiority in ministry through a display of weakness. Paul's superiority is based on his weakness and on the grace of God. Their superiority is based on their superior status in their own minds. Status in their own minds. And so verse 12 says, For we are not bold, and as I mentioned last week, he could call that daring. It's kind of sarcastic there. Paul's saying, I'm not going to jump into this fray. We are now bold to compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. Remember earlier they had letters of commendation. Paul didn't need one because the existence of the Corinthian church is his letter of commendation. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. And so one of the things that if we take away from this, what we really need to learn is... When it comes to Christian ministries, of what, whatever sort they might be, comparing ourselves with one another to see who's better is a, a fool's mission. Okay? I read last week, if you weren't here, I read 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul actually instructed them, the Corinthians, that if somebody seemed less important, that that person be given more abundant honor. Okay? So if somebody's multi-talented and has everything going for them, don't put them on a pedestal and say, look at this great person. God created every one of us, and everybody that he saves, he brought into the body. He added them to the church, all right? And if God adds somebody to the church, God adds them because they have a place in that church, and they're important in that church. And therefore, they must be received and treated with honor and not start some sort of a comparison uh, contest because it's really very carnal. It really is. And 
We should rejoice in the giftings of everybody that the Lord adds to his church. There's some irony here. They claim to be in a different league than Paul, and Paul says they are. <laughs> They're in league with Satan and the people that boast in their own pride. <laughs> Let me read some. I found this uh, garland has some very interesting citations from the world that they lived in back then, and I want to read a few of those for you, and then we'll look up some cross-references. Starting here, David Garland's commentary on this. Boasting in one's own accomplishment is theologically misguided. Boasting in another's as if they were the ones they were one's own is even worse. Taking credit for what somebody else did. Since he was the first to plant the gospel in Corinth when it was still unplowed ground, one Corinthians three six, the Corinthians belonged within the limits of his jurisdiction, their very existence is his letter of commendation written by Christ, 2 Corinthians 3, 2 and 3. Second, his boasting is within bounds because he does not try to assert his superiority over others by comparing himself with them. He measures himself only by what God does in him. Self-commendation proves nothing except a lack of understanding on the part of those who commend themselves. Only commendation from God deserves any notice. So... That's the basic attitude that we come with. The only thing that really, let's look at it this way. The only thing that really matters is what God thinks about it. And if we're very honest, we're not too, we're always a little shaky about what God thinks about us. Is that true? Unless we're Haman rather than Mordecai, <laughs> we, we're not expecting. Expecting, oh wow, God thinks I'm great, I, because I'm quite sure that He does not. But on the other hand, I love thinking about God's grace, that God could even use any of us, and is as uh, sinful as we know ourselves to be. Now, some of the things that Garland has to say, I think, will help us. He also he will also dare to join those others who dare to boast, but admits that it is the daring of a fool. 11.21. Not because he cannot back up his boasting with performance equal to his words, but because God does not back up such foolish boasting. God humbles the proud so that they will not try to take credit for what God has done. In the ancient world, comparison was a common rhetorical exercise practiced in schools. And comparing oneself with other teachers was a common tactic for the teacher to attract students and their fees. Stansbury points out that in the political arena, Greek hubris, hubris, we use that word in English, pride, combines with Roman enmity to produce vicious smear tactics against rivals. Hmm, sounds like uh, TV ads for politicians. Some things never change. <laughs> so they used to do that way back then. Smear tactics. People in this society assumed that honors were as limited as material wealth. Since there was only a limited amount of honor to go around, one resented and envied others for having it. Political enemies were targets of exaggerated character assassination designed to make them symbols of shame or of political subversion. This was in the first century. Nothing changes. You know what we, I think all the problems with the human race are built into humans and give them a chance, and they'll go the same direction every time. <laughs> it takes grace to change anybody. So here they were doing the same things they do now. The only difference is they didn't have TV, so they had to work harder to get their message out. In the cutthroat competition for plaudits and pupils, one had to advertise oneself publicly with audacious praise while impugning the qualities of other contenders for honor. So this self-boasting was uh, uh, something that they... Uh, prided themselves in, and anybody around you that might be a rival in your sphere of influence would be maligned and made to look unfavorable compared to oneself. So Paul is warning against such things. Now I'm going to do some more of this. I think this gives you a background to this. Lucian, the great satirist, pokes fun at the popular teachers who compare themselves with others to exalt themselves. And his professor of public speaking 
A wily veteran instructs the novice on how to achieve popular success. Quote, make marvelous assertions about yourself, be extravagant in your self-praise, and make yourself a nuisance to him. What uh, was Demosthenes, what was Demosthenes besides me? Such extravagant self-regard was considered a characteristic of sham philosophers who were frequently lampooned by other more serious philosophers. So they had these things going on. Here's another citation from Garland talking about Paul here. Second, he rules out this fundamental rhetorical tool of showing superiority through comparison as something completely illegitimate for ministers of God. Now, if you remember, we did some, uh, we went back into 1 Corinthians last week, and this theme goes all the way through 1 and 2 Corinthians. And it starts in 1 Corinthians 1 when Paul says, they're saying this, quoting these people, I'm a Paul, I'm Apollos, I'm a P- Peter. And they were want to make these comparisons and become sectarian or divided based on uh, whoever their popular preacher was. Quoting again from Garland, only fools dare to use self-comparison with others to commend themselves to others. Even when he so foolishly joins the fray of comparison, are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I more. 11.22. Remember Paul says, You've been, I, I had to jump in here because for the sake of the gospel, but I'm a fool. I'm a fool to do this. And he ends up only boasting in his weakness the very things that they think should oust him from the contest. He thereby changes the ground rules of how to play the boasting game. <laughs> and after Paul jumps into the fray and tells about his shipwrecks and his beatings and his visions, the whole thing ends up with a thorn in the flesh that God gave him so that he wouldn't exalt himself. And so therefore what he had left to boast in was weakness. Isn't that amazing? Boasts only in weakness. And the Lord gave him the weakness because of the, the visions that he had seen. That's where this is going. I wanted to give you a little preview just to put this into context. So he does, doesn't want to get into this comparison game because that's exactly what the philosophers and politicians did in the secular world. Let's look up some cross-references. Sam, could you look up Proverbs 26.12 and Norma, Proverbs 27.2, Alice, Luke 18 and verse 11, and Troy, Romans 15.17 and 18, and Joanne, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 12. The first passage was Proverbs 26. 12. Proverbs 26.12 Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. <laughs> Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool. <laughs> okay, Proverbs 27.2 Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. All right. Self-commendation is ruled out. Luke 18 and verse 11. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. (laughs) Thank you, God, I'm not like this sinner over here. Now, that's quite a prayer, isn't it? (laughs) So, the guy was in the wrong by thinking that way. Romans 15, 17, and 18. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. Mm-hmm. And then 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 12. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. Yeah. Amen. Paul was the one who came there with the gospel, and he paid a price. Paul paid a, paid a price for, if you read the story of Acts, which he went back to a few times, 
Uh, to put it in context, he'd been in Athens and was really not well received there. And he'd had a lot of conflicts. And it said that he came to them in fear and trembling. It says that in the Corinthian, First Corinthians. So he came there and paid a price. And the result was that God did have many there. He told Paul to stay in Corinth because he had souls there. And a church was established. And his letter of commendation is the existence of a church. He preached the gospel. A church was there. That's something to boast about. Because that's what God did. That, that, that's what God did. One man has never yet personally put somebody into the kingdom. We're not capable of it. All we can do is declare the terms. God adds people to the church. God adds people to the church. That's his work. But we can declare the terms. Verse 13. But we will not boast beyond our measure... But within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us a measure to reach even as far as you. Now, obviously the theme here is measure, metron, and various words, canon, where we get our word canon, is here, sphere. There's a lot of discussion amongst the scholars about how to translate this. It's not the best Greek in the world. And... Not so easy to understand. So I did a lot of reading with this. And probably the sphere is, is the best way to translate canon. And Paul appeals to the fact that the church in Corinth exists. That's the main idea. And that's an undeniable fact. And so if there's going to be a boast, it's not going to be beyond measure. But God apportioned a sphere or a canon or a norm and... That included Corinth. Paul's boasting is based on the work he had done in Christ in the region where God sent him. He went there. He preached. He suffered. He went in much fear and trembling. But he did preach the gospel. And the resulting sphere was a church that God caused to come into existence. And the thing that was causing so much sorrow for Paul that provoked the severe letter and provoked 2 Corinthians and his proposed future visit was that after he left, they turned against him. And they listened to false teachers and false apostles who claimed to be more spiritual. It it shocked me when I first realized that's what was going on. Until I got Gordon Fee's commentary on 1 Corinthians in the late 1980s, I have to admit I could never understand 1 Corinthians. In fact, I've got to admit that early on I totally misapplied 1 Corinthians. I, I, I believed that it taught the opposite of what it taught. Let me tell you how. Before I read Gordon Fee, as I read 1 Corinthians chapters 1, 2, and 3, the way I read them was that it says there's two different types of Christians the spiritual Christians, and the soulish Christians, right? Now, I have been influenced by Watchman Nee and his false teachings. That's what got me into trouble. One of my teachers at Bible college saw me carrying around Watchman Nee, and he said, that's false teaching, you shouldn't be listening to it, and you're going to get yourself into trouble. Well, I listened to Nee and not the teacher. (laughs) And so Nee convinced me that uh, most Christians are soulish and not spiritual. And the way you go from soulish to spiritual is to learn how to listen to your spirit. Because your spirit was the perfected part of your spiritual anatomy. And the soul was often drawn to the body. And the body was where all the problems were. And misinterpretation of First Corinthians chapter 1, 2, and 3 is what undergirded that thinking. And I eventually got out of the thinking just because of the dead end it led me to. I can't claim any great spiritual or exegetical insight that helped me get out of it. I just couldn't do it. Thankfully, I finally came to the conclusion that I really wasn't spiritual. (laughs) Okay, I'm just no good at this being spiritual. (laughs) I'm just going to give up. Be one of those carnal Christians because I wasn't so good at being a spiritual one. And me thinking spiritual meaning I could never figure out the difference between my soul and my spirit, you know. My soul's doing this, my spirit's doing that. I I couldn't figure that out. 
Well, then comes Gordon Fee's commentary on 1 Corinthians. And it is just the most, one of the finest commentaries on any book of the Bible that I've ever read. And it totally shocked me to find out what Paul actually was saying. He was saying the total opposite of how I was interpreting it. And he wasn't actually claiming that there were two classes of Christians, the carnal Christian and the spiritual Christian. He was rebuking the Corinthians because they were claiming to be hyper-spiritual and they were acting more like the carnal that they claimed they weren't. And he's using it as an ironic rebuke. If you have trouble understanding 1 Corinthians, purchase yourself a copy of Gordon Fee's commentary and, and take however long it takes, six months, a year, go at your own pace and study through it. It's, it's, worth, it's worth the time. You will then really understand 1 Corinthians. So that was a, a breakthrough for me, and that's about the time my life finally started to get on the right track in 1986. Because two or three things happened that same year that really turned me, things around. One of them was that we had Dave Hunt come and speak on a seduction of Christianity. That was a way of slamming the door on a lot of the wrong stuff in the past. Another thing is I spent three years teaching through Romans, and that totally changed my theology. And another thing is I got Gordon Fee's commentary somewhere in those same years and read that, and then I realized where I'd been wrong. And it's one thing to know you were wrong just pragmatically because it didn't work out. It's another thing to know how you were wrong. And people need that to know that. If, if someone comes out of a movement that was harmful, and many of you have, and, I, and I've talked to many of you, what you need is to understand what exactly was wrong with it so that you know you're not crazy. Okay? And, and then you need to be able to understand what the truth is so that you have some, something to set your sights on where you need to go. Okay, this is what was wrong. Here's where I need to go. Once that gets established, sometimes it takes a couple years, then you start feeling, okay, I, I feel safe. I think I can go on from here. I think I can learn. And that's, that's what was necessary in my case. So understanding this Corinthian correspondence, the, the flash, the flash that just totally helped me see it was that they thought Paul was carnal. That's what they were, that's what they were saying. They thought Paul was not spiritual enough for them. And then, oh, okay, that's what's going on. He's defending himself against their charge that he's carnal. Notice in the same chapter we're in here, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, if you look a little earlier on, verse 2, you see Paul saying that. I ask that when I am present, I may not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some. Now notice, who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. They are saying Paul is carnal and walking according to the flesh. That's their charge. And boy, I, when I saw that, I thought, man, if the Apostle Paul was carnal, there's not much more hope for me. <laughs> no. <laughs> Once you get into this comparison game about who's spiritual, then it's just really bad. It's really bad. You, you just get into a rut and you can't get out. So he's using terms for measuring. Um, actually, in this case, as I was comparing various translations, the NIV wasn't bad. Every once in a while, I've got to throw a little bone to the NIV here. It's not my favorite translation, but uh, if you have one, don't feel embarrassed because I need you. Who has the NIV? All right, Jim, if you could read the 2 Corinthians 10:13 from the NIV, it's a little easier. We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will combine our boasting to the field God has assigned to us, a field that reaches even to you. Yeah. The NIV has the idea. Because the Greek is so difficult here, in some passages where the Greek is difficult, the more literal translation becomes very hard to understand. Okay, and that's the reason for translations like the NIV. They do some of the interpretive work for you. Okay. And that's, so that's the thought here. And if you look in the Greek, you see him piling up these terms for measurements is, is what's going on. Now, uh, David, sorry, could you look up 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 9? Actually, 
I'm going to give you Proverbs 25:14, and let's all turn to that because that's a long section. 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 9. I'm going to buy myself a new preaching Bible. I've had this one since the early 80s. But I notice that when I'm reading some of the Psalms, it has the these and thous in. It's a numbering and standard, but the old one. Yeah, it's before 95, so I'm going to get myself a new one. That's going to be my Christmas present, right? I told Diane I want a preaching Bible for my Christmas present. Okay, I'm going to read. Let me read 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 9, and then I'll have Dave do this proverb. Proverbs 27. Proverbs 27. Oh, excuse me, Proverbs 25, 14. Let's all read together here or look at it together, and I'll read. Verse 5. What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believe. 1 Corinthians 3, 5. 1 Corinthians 3, 5. And even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one, I planted Apollos water. Remember we read in Acts that Apollos went to Corinth after Paul was there? Okay, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. We, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. So they're a field and they're a building. This, those are analogies. So Paul was simply saying, I came there and preached, Paulus watered, the church is there. But the false apostles are the last ones to come around. See, the false apostles are always trying to muck up what's already there through a work of God's grace. False teachers target Christians. Okay? And false teachers will go to an existing church or send it, yes, send uh, you know, nowadays they go over the airwaves or over the Internet or over the whatever, or through books or whatever. But false teachers target Christians. And what false teachers will do, as they did in Corinth, is they will prey on the fact that we all know that we're not so great. Okay, hold on. Stay with me here. All right. There's a built-in dissatisfaction in every Christian. Absolutely. You know why? Because we're, we're, uh, sanctification is progressive. We know we should be conformed to the image of Christ, and we know we're not. And we would like to be better than we are in some regard, which is only right. But the false teachers have a secret. The false teachers have, oh, you're not the kind of Christian you ought to be. Okay, I can agree to that. I have the secret. You need a higher order experience. You need to learn about the positive confession. You need to come to our seminar and learn the secret of the deeper life. You need to submit to us and let us shepherd you. And we will tell you what you can do and what you cannot do. Then you'll be a better Christian. And they target the church, they target existing Christians, and they prey on the fact that we know things could be better. And that's what happened in Corinth. And so when they got done, Paul looked pretty bad in the eyes of the Corinthians. That they'd been converted through the gospel that Paul preached no longer seemed important because these guys had better visions, better experience, higher order spirituality. They had something to sell. Now, let me give you the antidote, the gospel, and and the means of grace. That's why we emphasize means of grace here. Uh, Ryan has written about this several times. We've spoken about it. We emphasize it because God uses his means to do his work of grace. And the means of grace are so simple, you probably couldn't sell them to somebody. Okay? You mean that's, that's all we need to do is to sit under the word of God and the fellowship of one another and to pray for one another and receive the Lord's Supper 
and uh, the things that God provided for Christians for the last 2,000 years. And that's how he's going to work. Are you sure? <laughs> well, that's not what Kenneth Hagin told us. Look at him. He never gets sick. Oh, he died. Well, but you know what I mean? There's a, don't let somebody take advantage of you because you know you're not doing as well as you should in whatever way. Life isn't so great. I hate to tell you this, but life in this world isn't so great. We get sick. We have financial problems. We have family problems. We have issues. And we have to battle our way through this life just to make it to the other end. Isn't that true? Well, then there's no magic bullet, so don't sign up for one. <laughs> All right? This is... You start by grace, you grow by grace, you end by grace, and ultimately God's grace is going to perfect us. And how, how it will be, we don't know. We just sort of have an inkling. I had a very interesting discussion with somebody the other day, or it was after church. Very good question they asked. They said, you know, I, I know somebody who died, and I don't know that they were a Christian, and somebody I knew pretty well. How are we going to be able to deal with it? How are we going to ever be able to be in heaven and know that some of the people that we knew aren't there and actually know that they're in eternal torment? How can that be? And the Bible does say that God will wipe every tear from our eyes. That's in Isaiah and in Revelation. And so there are probably some regrets when we first see things. But let me tell you something. that, I, that This is the answer I gave that person. We can only think in terms of the reality that we know and have experienced. And thinking the way we know things are now, looking forward into heaven and seeing that maybe some of my family aren't there, sounds horrible. It sounds like we couldn't even live with it. But let me, let me, give, you, let me give you my best guess. We don't understand... God's ways perfectly. We can only understand what we've been told in the Bible. When we actually experience the reality of God in heaven, face to face, and we see all of his perfections, his mercy, his justice, and all the things that are true about God, I think this. I think that it will be obvious to us why people are in hell. I think it will be obvious to us. It won't even be a big question. Because once we see the reality of justice in God's rule of the universe and his perfection, we'll realize that this is the best, this is what God chose, how he rules his universe, and we will not have any sorrows in heaven. I think we'll be overwhelmed with joy knowing that we deserve hell, but yet he chose us and we're there with him. Yeah. I, if you... Um, Ryan's pointed this out a number of times, and it's, it's a good thing to point out. If you look about what's going on in heaven from the glimpses we get in Revelation, what do you see? What's going on in heaven? They're worshiping. And they're, remo- they're still thinking about their, uh, their redemption. They're talking about the Lamb and the blood. And they're talking about justice. You know, in, the people who are in heaven, if you see them in Revelation, what are they seeing? How long, O Lord, will you, before you avenge us? They're actually calling for God to destroy people and send them to hell. From heaven. That's what it says. Okay. So, evidently they know something we don't. So just trust God. Okay? And this little lecture is just, I, I just want to share from my heart that don't get taken in. What we have I mean, just think of the Lord's Supper. We're going to have the Lord's Supper today. Let's think about it a little bit. Just think about that. Isn't that simple? Wouldn't you think that God could come up with something better than that? No, I'm saying that. No, I'm not saying that literally. No, absolutely not. I mean, this is so simple. Look at these Look at. I mean, look at the Roman Catholics. I mean, they they have big parades with with cardinals and uh, icons and. I mean, it's just amazing. And here we are, we have a little bread, a little wine, and we proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. That's all we got. 
but isn't it amazing that we have that? The, re- the reality of it isn't our pageantry. It isn't the size of the ball that we throw or the banquet, as I was preaching about this mishnah. The thing that makes the Lord's Supper what it is, is the actual blood that was shed once for all to purchase us, to purchase our redemption. It's what it signifies, what God did for us. He died for us. It signifies our Christian hope. We proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. It signifies that we believe that he's coming again. He's going to keep every promise that he ever made to us. We believe the marriage supper of the Lamb is actually going to happen and we're going to participate. So it's very simple. And dear ones, if you can rejoice in the simplicity of the gospel, it will save you a lot of sorrow and a lot of money. Nobody's going to save you money. Heresy is expensive. (laughs) It is. Heretics are the best at draining people of their money. Because they're selling you something. Okay. No extra charge, a little excursus, excursus there. But they were, the, the thing that was causing the problems to the Corinthians, as we read about Apollos and Paul, was their own tendency to go to the personality cult. They just wanted to do it. So, there, so that, that desire in them, which is an illicit desire, set them up. They were easy prey for the super apostles. The super apostles come in and say, you think Paul was something, you think Apollos was something, you see nothing yet. Look at what we got. And they're duped. That's what happens. Okay, Proverbs 25.14, uh, Dave Sari and Larry, Romans 15.20, and Dick, 1 Peter 4 and verse 10. Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of his gifts falsely. <laughs> Boast of his gifts falsely. It's not a good thing. And thus I aspire to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, but that so that I would not build on another man's foundation. Yeah. Paul wanted to go where the gospel had not already been preached. So his sphere. And uh, 1 Peter 4.10, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Wow, that's good. That's good. If you received a gift, then employ it. What do you do with it? Boast about it? No. You employ it to serve one another because the gift came from God's grace. And he gives us gifts to serve the body of Christ and to preach the gospel to the lost. That's why he gives them. Not for our self-aggrandizement. That's not why God gives a gift. You know, I think the big heroes and the big saints, the people that we think of like the Spurgeons of the world, they were just doing what they did. Spurgeon, I don't believe, in fact, he, was, he had a lot of problems. He was prone to depression, horrible bouts of depression that he could not get, out, he could not get rid of. And uh, I heard a lecture about that one time, uh, sort of a biographical lecture about Spurgeon, and his depression was so horrible. And he says, if I didn't think God was sovereign over all this, I couldn't bear it. He couldn't fix it. He just lived with it. And then he needed grace to get up in front of everybody and preach, but that's what he did. Depression or not. What's that? Yeah, a lot of people praying for him. So they uh, were just people with certain gifts that... Ended up blessing a lot of people, the spurges of the world, but they're not to be put on a pedestal. 2 Corinthians 10:14. For we are not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach to you, for we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ. He, he was the first, and he did not boast in the labors of others. Paul has not exceeded his commission from God, nor did he take credit for what others have done. Now, the opponents came and claimed Corinth as their field and immediately began to try to discredit Paul in the eyes of the church that he had founded. That was their way of taking charge, gaining accolade, taking advantage of them, 
planting seeds of, uh, in their minds that Paul was, there was something wrong with him. Okay, because, just think of what was going on. He comes, and because they're kind of carnal-minded in the sense of, uh, oh, Paul just wants our money, he worked at his trade as a tent maker so he didn't take any money from the Corinthians because if he did, they'd say he just wanted his money. Well, then what happened is the super apostles came along and made fun of Paul because he was a working man. He was a tent, tent maker. So, well, look at him. He doesn't look like much. All he does, he's not, what kind of a Christian minister is he? He's just making tents. So whatever he did was for some reason to be discredited in somebody's eyes. Whatever he did. So uh, that's what was going on there. Let's look at some cross-references. Diane, if you could look up. Do you want to read? Yes, it's an easy one. <laughs> it's an easy one? Acts 20:24. It's only one verse. It's, you know, it's not too bad. Okay, let, let me hand out a couple. Roger, if you could do Romans 1.16 and Kathy, Romans 15.18 and 19. And uh, Jim, Galatians 1.6-8. Galatians 1.6-8. Okay, Acts 20.24. 20, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Yes. They were pleading with Paul not to go because the Holy Spirit had been saying that, that he would be, um, in, you know, what, arrested, bound, that his life was in danger if he went to Jerusalem. It's kind of interesting I didn't say this in my sermon last Sunday because I, I had too much to cover and I couldn't give all the details that I uncovered in my research. But I, I marvel at the way Luke wrote Luke Acts and his um, he, he, things are in there that repeat themselves that you, don't, you may not see unless you're a real careful reader of Luke Acts. But, for example, in Luke 13, the sermon I did last week, there was... Uh, the Pharisees, some Pharisees, and they're not, these particular ones are not uh, put in a bad light by Luke. These Pharisees were trying to save Jesus from dying. Remember Herod, Herod wants to kill you? And they, they told him, you better get out of here, Herod wants to kill you. They're trying to save him from dying. Later in Acts, the same thing repeats itself because uh, Paul was going to Jerusalem and they tried to save him from dying. And in both cases, Jerusalem is the place where bad things happen to God's spokespersons. That was in Luke 13. Now, I, did, I had that in my notes, but I didn't preach it last Sunday because I could see the time flying by. So, so uh, yeah, Jerusalem is, is the place where bad things happen. Jesus goes there to die. Paul goes there to be arrested and rejected and so on. And it's also interesting that Paul went there with this uh, gift of money that we've been reading about. That was in Acts, it's in Romans, it's in 1 Corinthians, it's in 2 Corinthians. And it was a really big thing to him to take that gift of money to, to uh, Rome, or I mean to Jerusalem. The interesting thing about it is that when he gets there, the whole thing, it disappears. You don't hear a word about it. When he actually gets to Jerusalem, nothing is said about his gift. Later, before one of the kings, he, he, he mentions that he had come with alls. But it, we don't know what happened with it. And so Keith Gentile and I were discussing this the other day, saying, why? Why is it, why all of this buildup about the gift, and then when he gets there, nothing said about it? We, we believe that it was because the gift didn't do what he hoped it would do and was rejected. <laughs> they turned against Paul when he got there. And it wasn't even received. Could it have been that it wasn't about the money? The whole idea was the people and the unity with the Jews. Right. And the unity didn't happen. Okay. okay. The thing came to naught. And so the, the whole the narrative goes not to the unity of the church, but to the fact that it may have been some of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem that turned against him. It's interesting. Anyhow. It's an idea, something to think about. Now, uh, Romans 1 and verse 16. Romans 1. Romans 1, 16. 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Yeah, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God. Paul, when you, when you study Paul's use of the word power, he links it to the gospel repeatedly. He does in 1 Corinthians, he does in Romans. The word power is a term he uses for the effect of the gospel. So the people that want to have power, you know, the power meetings, you know, the, we're going to have power, God send the power, and we're going to slay people under the power of the Holy Spirit. They don't understand what true power is. True power is the gospel delivering a lost sinner from his or her sinful condition and making them a saint. That's the power of God. So if people want power, they preach the gospel. This is Romans 15, 18, and 19, right? Let me look. Romans 15, 18, 19, yes. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and around about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Yep. Fully preached the gospel. And Galatians... Uh, Galatians 1, 6 through 8 I have here. Yeah. Galatians 1, 6 through 8. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion or trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But if, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Yep. Wow. Same pattern, by the way. Paul preaches the gospel. There's a church in the area of Galatia. In comes the Judaizers saying, you can't please God unless you keep the Mosaic law. Paul called it a different gospel, anathematized it. Judaizers are still around today. And they write books, and they seem to, they, they always go in. I mean, the target of the, of the wolves is the sheep. The wolves target the sheep. And I quoted Luther saying, um, I found it really interesting. Luther has a lot of great things you can quote him. But uh, Luther was responding to the claim that some made that, uh, that you don't need to warn the flock about wolves. All you need to do is just teach them and they'll be wolf proof. And Luther's response to that, he says, if you fatten up the sheep, the sheep, only the wolves will be even more happy to eat them. <laughs> You're not doing your job as a shepherd unless you chase off the wolves. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they love to munch sheep, says Luther. Now, uh, I was going to quote some more here about Paul and his opponents. This is from Garland. The opponents, they judge themselves and Paul, according to their commanding presence, concrete displays of power and authority, 11, 19, and 20. Impressive speech, 11, 20, and 21. Worthiness to accept full compensation, 11, 7 through 11. See, because Paul's, they're, they're going to say, hey, we're getting paid because we deserve it. Look at Paul, he just does tense. Jew, Jewish pedigree, 11, 21, 22. Endurance of hardship, 11, 23 through 29. Mystical visions, 12, 1 through 6. According to these criteria, they pass with flying colors, and Paul failed. But Paul would insist that they not only have usurped God's role as the one who appraises ministry, but they have used false criteria and ignored the only measure that counts, what God has done in and through the minister. What God has done. That's why Paul says, I will only boast in the Lord. I will only boast in what God has done. So they are false. I used to work for many years in a uh, 
public school. And you would not believe what we went through on the holidays, especially Christmas. We had a lot of Jewish families. Some of them were even Christians, and they wanted to legalize and bring in some Jewish legalistic ways instead of the gospel. And they loved to have control. Hmm. So they're still Judaizers. Yes. Okay. Yeah, there are foes of evangelical Christians who are Torah only. Have you heard that? Torah only. Don't read anything but Torah. That's even more narrow than those guys I just wrote about. On the topic of power, I, I, uh, I'm thinking of the power of changed lives and changed worldviews. I was recently reading a news article, and uh, to paraphrase it, it says, well, I don't even know why, why it was even in this article at all, but they thought they'd take a pot shot at Christians. And they said, well, look at these kooks. Forty-four percent of Christians believe that Jesus is coming back to this earth within their own lifetimes. And, and I'm sitting here thinking to myself, well, Praise the Lord. Where did they find 44% of these Christians that even believe in the Lord's return at all? And, uh, and secondly, I'm saying, well, I mean, that's just totally bringing the scriptures true where it says the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. Yeah, and then also uh, Peter, uh, 1 Peter, 2 Peter 3, they're going to say, where's the promise of his coming? They're going to be mockers. They're going to mock the Christian message. Absolutely. We've got some, the SO4J put that, um, that thing that was on Channel 6. Did anybody see that? Where we are talking about the gospel? I mean, it's really strong gospel. And so they got a bunch of really nasty emails from... <laughs> oh, yeah, I was going to... That reminds me. There it is. That's, that's the video right there. And it was broadcast on that Channel 6 all over the Metro. So we've got some good feedback. And we also got some mockery from uh, from the... Uh, some non-Christians who says, who do you pe- people think you are, idiots? And, you know. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> now, one more item of business. Someone really wants to see the DVD of the debate between me and Greg Boyd from, like, 2004. Do, do, does somebody have a copy? Anybody have a copy? If, you could, if somebody could find a copy, they're no longer in production. So if I can find a copy, I will make a copy for the guy that wants it. Okay. Yeah, I'll make you one too. Okay. Okay, I'll make a bunch. I'll have Karen make a bunch of copies. If they're not producing it and not selling it, I don't. I don't. I don't. If KKMS. They're not producing it, and this guy called them, and they said, "Ask me." Yeah. Then. It's not the best quality is what I don't like about it. They, they didn't know what they were doing. They just had a couple of little camcorders, and, and they didn't even have a live sound feed going into it. So that was quite a debate. That was, I'll never forget that. that when, I, when I walked into that place, and this whole building is packed with people, I went, oh, boy. <laughs> and I was plan B because John Piper was supposed to debate him, and he pulled out, so they got stuck with me. <laughs> okay, uh, 10.30, we'll have church today. It's Communion Sunday, and so have on your heart what the Lord has done for you. See you upstairs. God bless you.